All right, how we doing, Eastside? Come on, give it up, give it up. That was a great worship set. Great, great, great job. Thanks for being here. Good to have you in the house of God. We're thrilled that you came today. Want to welcome our online community. Everybody give it up for people online. They watch from all over the place. And it's thrilling to have you. We told you a story uh, several weeks ago that a family from the state of Oregon started watching us and loved what was happening at Eastside so much that they sold everything and they moved to southern Indiana. And they showed up a couple weeks ago and joined our church uh, last week from the state of Oregon. So that's pretty crazy. Hey, we're glad to have you. Uh, thanks for being here. Our guest. Uh, we exist for you. We're thrilled that you've come. And uh, we're going to take your uh, phone, and there's a little sticker right in front of you on the seat. Just scan that, and that'll tell you how we can give you a gift. We'd love to say thanks for coming. So do that sometime during the message, and we'll be able to treat you to that, okay? Now, before I teach, I've got a couple things I want to talk about um, in the life of our church so you remember some of these things. Uh, June 10th, that's a Friday night. Uh, that's going to be our next night of worship here at Eastside. We love nights of worship. We really do. Um, we just kind of really rock it out then. And uh, that's not only an opportunity to, to sing and to be able to enjoy a little bit of what we just did here. But I want to tell you about some of the people that are up on this stage. I want to tell you something about that. It's not that they're talented, okay? That's, that's cool that we've got some people that are really talented musically here. But I want you to know those are the real, real deal people. I have seen, I have seen some of them in that back hallway right here in absolute uncontrolled tears over what God had done in this room right after they sang. Those are the real deal. So on worship nights, nights of worship, we cut it loose, okay? This was calm compared to what we do on nights of worship. So mark that down, June 10, Friday night, seven o'clock. All the cool kids are gonna be here, okay? So you wanna make sure that you're a part of that. And then let me celebrate a little bit about a couple nights ago, Tuesday night, we had Pathway here unbelievable night. Just every time we have pathway, it just rocks our brain. What God is doing around here. Uh, dozens of people uh, got on the track to be involved in volunteer uh, service ministries here. Dozens of people got on track to get into life groups. But maybe the cool thing of all is that 17 people met Jesus in that baptistry uh, last Tuesday night. Isn't that great? Awesome, awesome. And then what we do at we, we do at Pathway is we, we encourage people that we believe it's important uh, to find a church and to make a commitment to be an engaged, active, a grounded participant in the body of Jesus Christ's church. And so we call people to make that commitment. And 55 people became members of our church last Tuesday. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? So God did a great wonder uh, here among us in Pathway uh, last Tuesday, and we just wanted to, to share that with you a little bit. All right, let's dive into the Word of God. And I want to begin uh, with a question that's really blunt and just straightforward and kind of in your face. But I, I want you to play with this question a little bit, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it. And here's the question. Is it okay to write someone out of your life? Is that okay? That you just be cool never seeing those people ever again? Is that okay? Is God cool with that? 
And there's some folks in this room right now that you're thinking when you see that, of course not. I mean, that is not what Christians do. Nobody should ever do that. And there's a lot of people in this room that you're thinking that right now. And there are other people who are thinking about you. Dude, you don't live my life. You don't know who I live with. You don't know who I work with. You don't, don't know what I've been through. One of my old buddies was telling me that his father-in-law had passed away, and the father-in-law left instructions that after he passed away, that the family was to get together, and this guy had written uh, very detailed instructions, uh, kind of who gets what. And so uh, he said, I want everybody together, and somebody's going to read through that. And so uh, my buddy said, we're kind of all there. I mean, everybody's there, uh, the, the kids, the grandkids, the cousins, nephew, in-laws, outlaws. I mean, everybody's there. And they start reading through this letter, and it's just kind of pretty sweet, you know, nothing too unusual. Uh, to my grandson, Tommy, have my riding mower. To my daughter, Barbara, you have my kitchen table where your mother and I had coffee together. Every, kind of worked through that list there. And then seemingly out of nowhere came this sentence. To my son, Randy, I leave nothing and you know why. Is that okay to do that? Are some of you right now thinking about putting that line in your will, huh? I imagine for those of us in this room, we probably have never gotten to the point where we said, you know what, there's another individual I wanna have nothing to do with. But you probably have had moments where you seem to be moving in that direction a little bit. You, you remember those guys that were playing golf and they got together buddies and one of them said, uh, they were kind of bragging afterwards and one of them said, you know what, every time I get in an argument with my wife, she comes crawling to me on her hands and knees. And his buddies were saying, no way, dude. And one of them said, man, I know your wife. That would never happen. He goes, I'm telling you, it happens every time, every single time. She crawls on her hands and knees. She looks under the bed and says, come out and fight like a man. Well, those, <laughs> those are a couple of people kind of heading that direction a little bit, aren't they? Now you think about that a little bit and over and over we know stories where things happen where it just seemed like, you know, the, those people are just writing people out of their life. Bob Russell shared a news story one time from the city of Prague in the Czech Republic and a, uh, uh, the news story said that there's a wife in the city there who had learned that her husband was gonna leave her for another woman and she was struggling with that so bad about whether she should commit murder or she should commit suicide. And she chose the latter and blindly jumped out of their third story apartment window and she only received minor injuries though because she fell on her husband who was returning from work and killed him on the spot. So I guess that's one way you can get somebody out of your life. But really, really, is it okay? Does God say there's times when that's, that's okay? And we're gonna wrestle through that a little bit in this message as part of this five-part series that we call Little Sticks of Dynamite. And if you weren't here last week, what we're talking about when we reference that is that if you grabbed a copy of the Bible somewhere, there are 66 books in this Bible. That's what the Bible is. It is a collection of 66 different books and letters. And this is just a volume of all those together. And there are five of them. Only five out of 66 that only have one chapter. They're real little tiny fragments that you probably hardly ever read. And they don't get pressed, they don't get knowledgeable, they don't get thrown out there for people to study. 
But if you dive into them, you find out that they have a punch and a power that you might never have expected. And so we're gonna take five weeks, we're gonna walk through them. And last week we started with this book called Obadiah and it was just mind blowing what we saw in there. And then this week, and we're gonna jump into the second one of those and it's a book called Philemon. And if you don't know anything about Philemon, I'm gonna give you a little backstory so that you get an idea of what this little tiny book is in the New Testament. And then you're gonna find an application to it that is just unbelievable. The Apostle Paul, we talk a lot about him in our, our church. He wrote much of the New Testament. If you took the books of the Bible in the New Testament portion, most of them are written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote more than anybody else there. We know that he was in prison three different times. And the evidence seems to suggest to us that during one of his arrests, during the, the period of time when he was in Rome, he was almost like in a house arrest. He had a rented house and he was, he, was, he was bound to that. And we know because of the evidence tends to suggest this, that while he was arrested and in Rome under house arrest in prison, he wrote two of the letters that are in your Bible. He wrote a book called Colossians and then he wrote this book called Philemon. And so Colossians and Philemon are two books in the Bible that he wrote together while he was in prison. The book of Colossians was written to the church in a city called Colossae. And so, so you, you kind of think of this idea almost like our church here at Eastside. The book of Colossians is written to this whole church so that it can be read to everybody in the church. Hey, we got something from the Apostle Paul. And then there is this little book called Philemon who the guy seems to be one of the men in the church at Colossae. Almost seems to be like some leader in there. So, so I want you to kind of think about this. If there were some spiritual authority somewhere that wrote a letter to Eastside for everybody here, and so we would read it out loud so that the whole body Here's what this person has to say to us about our journey with God. And let's say that this person wrote the whole book to Eastside, and then he wrote this little side note, this almost little, quiet, little, tender, private letter to one of the people in this church. And let's just say that we're gonna choose the chairman of our elders this year, Theo Cook, who, who sang for us and, and talked to us about remembrance around communion. Let's say that the letter was for Theo. And so two letters show up, one to the whole body and one to Theo. And that's what Paul did when he was in prison. He wrote the, the book of Colossians to the whole church and he wrote this little tiny letter to a guy by the name of Philemon, a leader in the church there. This one chapter book of the Bible, this private, small, tender letter between the Apostle Paul and a guy named Philemon. Now it appears, this is important, it appears that at some day previously, when the two of them were in the same region of Colossae before Paul was in prison, it appears that Paul led Philemon to Jesus. And so these two guys are tight, man. They got a good relationship, they're brothers. And so because the letter is short, there's not any fluff in it, there's not a lot of small talk in it. I mean, Paul gets right to the point. 
And he tells Philemon, his friend, I want to talk to you about a guy named Onesimus. And so right out of the gate, we know in this little letter, that's what it's about. Check out this opening sentence. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. So what is this book about, Philemon? It is about this guy named Onesimus. That's what it's about. And so Paul writes this whole letter to the whole church, and he says, hey, give this to Philemon. It's just his because I want to talk to him about Onesimus. Now, as you read through the letter, it becomes apparent that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. And somewhere along the line, Onesimus had stolen something from him, and he had ran away. And so in Roman culture that day, when you steal something, that is not viewed upon very highly. But dude, if you are a runaway slave, the consequences are incredible. And so what has happened is that Paul has gotten wind of this, that his buddy Philemon has lost one of his slaves. And Philemon was beside himself, and watch this, it's important, he had written Onesimus out of his life. I'm done with him, it's over. And so Paul refers to that in the 11th verse of this. Look at this. Formerly he, Onesimus, was useless to you. Now, the word useless there is important. I want you to see that. That's why I've got it highlighted, is because what we think is that Onesimus was not his real name. Often in that day, when people had slaves, they would give them different names. And so apparently, when Onesimus was taken by Philemon, Philemon turned whatever his name was to Onesimus, because Onesimus means useful. So what we think is that he was probably the best worker in the household. That Philemon would walk around and look at Onesimus and go, dude, you got it happening, man. You got it happening, you're the best person here. You do better job than anybody. You are so useful to us. But then the dude stole from him. He stole from him and he ran away with whatever he stole. And he had went from useful to useless. Now let that kind of get heavy with you for a second. Because if you've ever gotten to the point in your life where there's somebody in your circle, your world, that you look at and say, you know what, because of what they did or what they didn't do or what they keep doing, you know what, you are useless to me. I'm gonna write you out of my life. I wanna have nothing to do with you in my life at all. And that apparently is what is happening here. And Philemon has arisen to the point where he wants nothing to do with Philemon at all. Get him out of here, I wanna have nothing to do with him. And so Onesimus is on the run, and somewhere, make sure you catch this, hang on, because the backstory's almost over with, Onesimus running away with stolen goods from his master Philemon, heads toward Rome, where he comes in contact with Paul. And Paul meets this guy named Onesimus, and Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus. Gang, you can't make this stuff up, okay? 
And now Onesimus is a Christian. And so Paul looks at him and said, dude, you need to take that stuff back to Philemon. You need to apologize to him. You need to tell him you feel terrible about it. You need to tell him you'll work it off if you have to. And because Onesimus now is a believer in Jesus, he's gonna do the right thing. And so he begins to head back to Colossae. And Paul says, now before you go, why don't you do something? And he looks at the slave and he says, okay, I got this letter that's for the whole church there. I want you to go ahead and deliver it. You take it, okay, you take it. And then I'm gonna write a letter to Philemon and I want you to take it to him. Now watch this, watch this, just play with it. Put it as a video in your mind, it's crazy. Onesimus walks up to the home of Philemon and knocks on the door. And Philemon's opened the door and there's the runaway slave. And Onesimus says, um, you know, yo dog, what's, what's happening, you know? I got, a, I got a letter for you from Paul and uh, he wants to say something to you about me. And Paul grabs the letter and standing there on the front porch, Philemon opens it up, he sees it from Paul and he reads right out of the bat that Philemon, I know that you wrote Onesimus off. I know you're done with him. You've had it with him. He stole from you, ran away from you. And I want you to know, Philemon, that I'm asking you to take him back. Look at the 17th verse, which is the main verse in the whole letter. So if you consider me a partner, Paul's writing to Philemon, you think we're together, we think we're brothers, you consider me a friend? I want you to welcome him, I want you to welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. Don't write him off. I know he hurt you. I know he did stuff that you never want anybody to do to you. I understand that, but I want you to receive him. I want you to take him back. I don't want you to write him out of your life. I want you to bring him back into your life. And then the rest of the book has these little comments because it's all about that. The whole book is about that. It's just a little letter, take him back, take him back, take him back. And then Paul just sprinkles this stuff in there that just makes it even more powerful. The eighth verse, look what he said here. He said, in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. So Paul's telling Philemon, now I can tell you, you gotta do it because I'm an apostle. But I ain't gonna do that. I'm gonna to appeal to you on the basis of love. I don't want you to do this because you have to. I want you to do this because you love him. Notice what he said in the 14th verse. He said, any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. I don't want you to do because I'm bending your arm, I'm twisting you. I don't want you to do it because you have to, somebody's making you. I want you to do it because you wanna do it. And the 15th and 16th verse, are kind of the, the nutshell of it all. He says, you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave. Catch that. I don't want you to take him back as a slave. I want it to be better than a slave as a dear brother. And here's what that's saying, is I want you to receive back. Don't miss this, hang with me. I want you to receive back into relationship with you the person who hurts you, and I want your relationship now to be better than it ever was. 
We are never told what happened. We're never given that information. Onesimus delivers the letter, and he is never mentioned in the Bible again. So we don't know what happened. And I think the reason that we don't know what happened is because God didn't put that little thing in the Bible for me and you just so that you and I would know that story. That's not why he put it in there. He put it in there for the Philemon's among us. What would you do if you were him? The person that you have struggled with whether you want them in your life anymore or the person that that relationship is moving in that direction and, and you, just, you just have like fingernails on a chalkboard whenever they're around you and the question of why that's in the Bible is what would you do with that person if God asked you to take them back into your life? Now I know there are different situations and Nothing really applies to everybody. I, I get all that. I understand that. But I think there are some general concepts that are taught in the Bible. And I want to throw just a few of them to you. I'll be as brief as I can. But I want to encourage you maybe to take some of these concepts and help you to learn how could I ever, how could I ever not write them out of my life? How could I bring them back into my life so it's better than it ever was? How could I even do that? Well, there's some biblical concepts that can help you do that. I want to show some of you some of them that I think stand out among all the other ones. And, and here's one. I, I think probably I'd like to teach it and, and we just go home with it because it's so powerful. I want to encourage you to somehow get into your DNA about who you are as a person, that you're a person who always leans toward grace. That you just lean that way. And whenever these people are in your life and they rub you wrong a little bit, that your tendency is just to kind of be leaning toward grace. One of my favorite preaching stories of all time, I've shared it a couple times with you, was submitted by a lady by the name of Clara Nall, and she submitted it to a national magazine because something happened to her one day at lunch that she thought was just incredible, and she wrote about it. She took her little girl to, to, to lunch one day, and they were sitting there having lunch, and uh, the food came and uh, this lady asked, uh, Claire asked her daughter to pray for the food. And so she starts praying. She's just a little girl. And it's a cute little, you know, prayer. You know, thank you for mommy and thank you for daddy and thank you for trees and bugs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then at the end of the prayer, this little girl said, and God, please tell mommy to give me some ice cream. And she said, amen. And the prayer was over with. And there was a lady next to her who was sitting at a table all by herself, an older lady, and she was watching this whole thing and she heard it. And after that, sweet little girl said, amen, this lady says to Clara, you ought to be ashamed of yourself as a mother, teaching your kids to pray for ice cream. That is exactly what is wrong with the world. And this lady just sitting there taking it from her. And she said she wanted to get up and throat punch this old lady. And then she just kind of held it back because my daughter's in front. You know, I don't want to do that in front of my daughter. She's a better woman than me. Man, I would have cut loose, okay? And if that was my granddaughter, I'd have 
did something to that old battle act that would have changed the world a little bit. And so Clara said she was just real quiet, but she determined in her mind, by God, I wasn't gonna get any ice cream, but you bet your boots I'm gonna get some now. And she ordered ice cream and she brought it and gave it to her little girl. And the little girl's eating this ice cream. She's kind of sad because this lady's mad at her. And right when she was eating it, there was this fella that came through the restaurant, an older guy, and he apparently had been watching the whole thing, walking, and he, he came up and he got down by a little girl and he whispered in her ear, I happen to know God thought that was a great prayer. Ice cream is good for the soul. And the old man left. And Clara said, a couple minutes later, this little girl, all on her own, got out of her chair, and she walked over to uh, Nurse Hatchet's table, and she put her ice cream down, and she said, here, this is yours. Ice cream is good for the soul, and my soul is already good. Oh, come on now, huh? Now, watch this, watch this, and, and, and apply this. Make sure you, you come together and see the reasoning about that. If we wanted really to soften that lady's heart, what do you think would have been most effective? An out-of-control emotional mom or a little girl giving up her ice cream? I want you to hear me as an old man who's seen a lot in my life if you want to change a person, there are few things that have more power to change them than grace. You ever change anybody by arguing with them? You ever change anybody by saying, I'm done with you? No. My experience is that people tend to change when grace is given them. And isn't that what Jesus did with that lady? When they brought that lady in the midst of immorality and that, that famous story in the book of John where Jesus tells the crowd, well, well whoever's never sinned, you throw the first stone and, and they all leave. You remember the last thing that Jesus said to this gal? You remember? He, he really said two things. Check this out. He said, neither do I condemn you. That is grace. Don't miss this. And then he said this. Go now and leave your life of sin. And that's truth. He dealt with the issue. He didn't sweep it under the carpet. He said, we got a problem. We got to deal with this. He dealt with it, but he did it in a spirit of grace. If you want to know, how can, I, how can I let that person still be in my life? How can I offer forgiveness to somebody that I just want to, man, I don't ever want to see him again. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want him around here. How do you do that? You, you train yourself to lean toward grace because it's the most powerful thing that we have to change people. A few years ago, there were a couple churches who called me, and they were kind of almost a coincidence that it was happening at the same time in their churches that were miles apart, and they were going through similar situations 
with staff members in their churches. And they kind of wanted an outside source to kind of speak in a little bit on what maybe they ought to do from this point. And in both situations, there was a staff member in those churches who had misstepped, who had done something they should have never done, and the churches had dealt with it, and those staff members were repentant, and they were sorry, and they were humble, and they were wanting to learn from it. But the churches were wondering, well, what do we do now? How do we, how do we, son, do, do we just let them stay here? Do we have to dismiss that? And so they were, they were seeking out counsel, and I got calls from both those churches. I, I remember telling them that you are justified in no matter what you do. It is justifiable dismissal. It is justifiable grace to keep them. It really is. But I said this to them. I said, I'm just going to tell you my experience from what I've seen in my life and the situations that I've been in. I just want to tell you something, that I think the favor of God at the end of the road two years down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, that the favor of God will follow grace. One of the churches chose to dismiss their staff member. One of the churches chose to retain the staff member. And two years later, the church that retained the staff member, listen carefully to this, was thriving. And the church that dismissed the staff member was in shambles. So I'm just, I'm just sharing with you my, my own experience of what I think is a biblical principle is somehow get it into your DNA to lean toward grace. Now, I want to share another one with you, and this is going to be one of my, I'm kind of becoming a little bit famous around here for get up under your grill, okay? And this one's going to kind of concern some of you, and some of you aren't going to like me, but, you know, you get over it a few days and come back and you'll forget it, okay? So I want to encourage you to do this. I want to encourage you to learn to protect our image. I want to encourage you to do that. And I want you to be very careful when you look at that, okay, because it doesn't say it doesn't say anything there to protect your image. It doesn't say to protect the other person's image, their image. It says exactly what I mean, protect our image. And so if you have relationships that get a little wrinkled and you wonder, okay, what do I do about that? I'd like to just forget it and they're gone. I don't have to deal with them anymore. I don't ever want to talk to them again. I don't want to see them. If you want to change all that and be a Philemon, then learn the power of protecting our image. So what do you mean by that, Dave? Well, let me, get, let me get real with you. Let me get under the grill and mess with you a little bit. Last Tuesdays, I shared with you, 17 people uh, joined the kingdom of God, uh, received the forgiveness from the cross of Jesus, were buried in Christian baptism, the beginning of their new life. 55 people called this their home. This is their place. And if you're one of those, I want to talk to you right now. Now, if you're not one of those 17 or 55, the reality is most people in this room, you were at some point, okay? You had a point, at some point in your life, you gave your life to Christ, you became a member of a church, and so all of us have been there, but if you're one of the 17 55, I want you to hear me. From now on, from now on, in whatever you do in your life, you don't represent just you anymore. You represent the Jesus who died for you. 
And you represent our family here at Eastside. And if that is in the forefront of your thinking, it will have an impact on your attitude at work. It will impact what pictures you put on social media. Somebody say preach. Somebody say that. It will impact what words come out of your mouth. I've seen Christians make posts on social media. I've seen them say things. I've heard them think. And I think, what in the world are you thinking? You're, what you're not thinking is that you have our image now. That is such a big deal to God that there is one of the most amazing things that I think I've written in all the Bible dealing with this. It's a church called Corinth. We've played with it a little bit. We've talked about the Corinthian church here. And they had this issue in, this, in the church of Corinth, just like a church here at Eastside, where there were some people in the church who'd kind of done some things to each other of a legal nature, and there were some, some rough spots going on in some relationships, and, and it was kind of legal stuff, and maybe someone you know put a fence too close to their neighbor's yard. Maybe somebody bumped into someone's camel pulling out of church, you know, Somebody owed some money. Whatever it was, we don't know what it was. But they kind of had this stuff going on. And the way they settled that is they went to the courts in the city. They said, let's, let's just go to judge. I'll sue you. You sue me. Let's go let them settle it. And they went to judges who don't know anything about Jesus to help people who know Jesus settle their disputes. And the apostle Paul heard about it and about lost his marbles. He said, when you go to a non-believing judge, it tells him that Christians can't get along. It destroys our image. And so the apostle Paul said to them, it would be better, listen carefully, it would be better just to lose than to take a brother or a sister to court and ruin your image. It'd be better just to lose. Notice how he said it here in this text. He said, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers. Why not rather just be wronged? Why not rather just be cheated? because it's so important to protect your image. When you go back to that question we started with today, is it okay to write somebody out of my life? I want you to listen carefully to that. Regardless how you answer that, like I'm done with them or no, I'm gonna try to bring them in. Watch this very carefully. The way you answer that tells people something about your Jesus. And it tells something about your church. So, am I gonna write anybody out of my life? How do I do that? How do I bring them back in? How do I get over what's happened? I learn to protect our image. That's big. I'm gonna throw you one more and we'll be done here. It's, it's, uh, it's getting late. Let me, let me just give you one more suggestion that kind of helps from a biblical concept about how to, how to do this. I'm gonna put this up on the screen. I wanna encourage you to do what God does to you. And you know what he does to you. Because you are in this. 
if you're not sure where, then go find your Bible someday and look for the book of Luke somewhere. You'll find it in there. And go to the 15th chapter of Luke, and there's a story with your doggone name on it. it, it it's, it's, that, it's that kid that you're saying, dude, they're writing about me. And, and he'd, you know, he'd had enough, and he'd left the house, and you know, I'm done, and I'm, I'm gone, and dad, I'm gonna take all your stuff, and, and I'm gonna leave, and I'm gonna abandon the values of our family, I'm gonna squander our wealth, I'm gonna stain our reputation, and you know about that, you know about that boy, and when he hit rock bottom, and decides to come home to face his father, who's written him out of his life, he thinks. Is the old, and you know the story. There's dad sitting on the front porch thinking, maybe today's the day my boy comes home. And the first sight of the sun, dad jumps off that porch and takes off running toward him and embraces him and escorts him back to the house and throws a party for him. And why would the dad do something like that? because he said it two times, he said it two times in the story, right here, right here. Check this verse out. He was lost and is found. He was lost and is found. See, that's me. And if you don't know it yet, that's you. And so when you mess with me, and I'm thinking, you know what, I've about had it with you, and I'm done with you, and I don't want you in my life anymore, I remember how God treated me, and that changes everything. Let me tell you in a transparent way how that's worked for me, and we're gonna be done here. We're gonna sing about this, okay? There's a school bus that comes by my house every day for school. Thank God it's about over with. We're gonna have a break from it. And they, this school bus comes by my house, and right in front of my house, it drops off some kids. They're middle school kids. And uh, there's about seven or eight of them that get off the bus every day at school. And uh, they get off and they go to their houses and go wherever they're going in our neighborhood. And, and uh, there's two or three of them that traipse right through my yard. And that's uh, fine with me. I was telling Quill this story the other day. And he said, dude, you sound like a 75-year-old man. So uh, these kids come through my yard and I don't care about that. But what they've been doing for about a year and a half now is they get off that bus and they take that mask off their face and they throw it in my doggone yard. And I come home, I got a mask in my yard. And I go around, I pick up old nasty things and, and uh, put them in a the garbage can. And I'm, I'm getting to the point where I about had it with these kids. I about had it with the mask, okay? And so I came up with a plan of what I was gonna do with this. And my plan was I was gonna collect those for a while. So I come, I mean, every day I come home from work, I go out and pick up the stupid mask. I'm gonna collect them, I'll put them in a box, I'm gonna stick them out of my garage, I'm gonna just collect a few. And then one day I'm gonna come home from work early. I'm going to the backyard, I don't know where it's gonna sit, where they can't see me, and I can see through a window when they get off that bus. And the first dude that throws his mask off, I am hot-tailing it to him. And I'm gonna tell that kid, you pick that mask up, Right now, you're gonna pick it up? I'll say, you come with me. And we're gonna go in my garage, and I'm gonna tell him, you take every one of those doggone masks right there, and I'm gonna cram them in his backpack if I got to, and I'm gonna tell him to go home and don't ever throw another mask 
in my yard again. And so I had the plan, I had it all together, and I was about instituting the plan um, a couple weeks ago. I picked up the mask, I said, it's the first one, man. I'm heading to the garage, I'm gonna put it in a box. I got the box, it's right there. The plan is happening, and then, and then it hits me, it's that Holy Spirit thing. Lord, I love your spirit, but I get old, tired of him once in a while. And the Holy Spirit says, are you serious, Hastings? You think God wakes up in the morning, Hastings, and he sneaks over on a chair and just watches for you to do something wrong, and then he's going to be on you? You think that's what God does to you? And the Spirit was just telling me, how can I collect their mask when God doesn't collect mine? And so I thank God for his mercy and grace, and I abandoned the plan. So I'm mowing a couple weeks ago. (laughs) I'm mowing my yard, and I see the bus come, and I'm watching it. And I turn around, I start moving back towards the bus, and I'm watching them kids get off. And one of them gets off, and I know it. He looks like a mask litterer to me, okay? (laughs) And I stop the mower, and I'm starting to move. And I sense that rotten spirit again. Really? I I thought we settled this. I guess I have to remind myself over and over and over that I am forgiven. And maybe you do too. And maybe if we keep reminding ourselves of our own forgiveness, we will have less people written out of our life. Hmm? Let's thank God for the power of his word. Let me ask you to stand. We're going to pray. Then we're going to sing about this. Father God, um, what you have done in your son Jesus is so far beyond anything we could ever do. But I'm I'm just speaking for me. I'm so glad you never wrote me off. Help me, help me to do to other people what you've done to me. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen.